Our scripture reading for this morning is in Genesis 28. You can find this passage in the Pew Bible that's um, slipped in the pew right in front of you on page 22. Again, this is Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, 
And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Morning, everyone. All right, so... You can uh, turn back to Genesis 28 if you haven't been here um, in, the, in the recent um, past or if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, and so this morning we find ourselves in chapter 28, and uh, so we're going to be walking through that chapter together. But I want to actually start our thoughts in a different passage um, so you don't have to turn there because it's going to be up on the screen here. It's a familiar passage maybe for many of you. But Isaiah 40 at the end says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So look at the beginning. Chad, maybe go to the first slide again. Why do you think God refers to his people with both the name Jacob and Israel? You see it there? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Okay, so he's talking about the people of God. Why does he call them by both names? Does that mean anything? Does he just, well, just mix it up a little bit? <laughs> or is there actually a purpose behind that? What is Jacob's name mean? We looked at it last week. His name means deceiver. Like, he's one who overreaches. He's always grasping. And that's who he was, right? He deceived his brother. He deceived his father. So, if you feel like God might be disregarding your way, like he doesn't know what's going on and maybe he's just left you on your own, why might you feel that way? Go ahead. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, because your prayers aren't being answered. What might you think, why, why aren't my prayers being answered? Because maybe it's because God doesn't care. Okay, he doesn't care. He doesn't know. Okay. Maybe he's just not paying attention. 
Has it ever maybe been because we've blown it too many times? We think, maybe it's just because (laughs) he's just sick of me. I've failed so many times. Maybe that's why he's just, he's just tired of me. Okay, so if you've ever felt disregarded by God, maybe it's for those reasons. Well, God's ways with Jacob are actually meant to help us, to encourage us, which is why in Isaiah 47, he refers to the people of God, not just as Israel, but also as Jacob. So God is faithful and loving and can renew the strength of people who cheat and lie and deceive and even blaspheme like Jacob. So is that encouraging? (laughs) That's encouraging. That's the whole point. So, Hopefully, Jacob's, the way God has dealt with Jacob here in chapter 28 will be an encouragement to us. This isn't just a history lesson for its own sake. It is for the sake of our faith, trusting in this great God of gracious faithfulness, all right? So um, there's an outline in your bulletin, or you can see the points on the screen and follow along. Um, We're going to look at the first five verses first. Um, So let's read those again here and dive right in. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. This is after last chapter. Jacob had deceived his father and gotten the blessing. And Esau came in and realizes that his brother has done this. And Esau wants to kill his brother. So Rebekah says, hey, Jacob, you need to hightail it out of town. Um, and here's how you can do it. You need to go get a wife back from my, my clan and kin. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, my mother, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. So if you were here last week, you know this is the case. Isaac had actually been fighting against the word of God, the will of God. So flip back to Genesis 25, 23. Rebecca was pregnant with twins. The twins are kind of fighting inside of her. And she asked the Lord, what's going on? And the Lord said to her, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. God already said This was going to happen. And then Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob. So Isaac would have most certainly known these things. And he still sought to bless Esau, his firstborn and his favorite, instead of Isaac. Do you see how Isaac is flying in the face? He's just rejecting God's word. 
So the beginning of the failure starts with Isaac. It's not Rebecca taking matters into her own hands. Isaac is the one who really gets things started off in the wrong direction. So he did not want to do what God had revealed to be his will. And God frustrated his purposes. Despite his efforts, his younger son was blessed and the older would serve the younger. Okay? So finally now, chapter 28, Isaac has yielded and submitted. He's basically said, okay, God, you won. And by faith, he blesses Jacob. That's why in Hebrews 11.20 it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So it was unbelief when he was trying to give the blessing to Esau, but God frustrated his purposes and he finally had to yield. And so then, by faith, he gets on board with what God is doing. Okay? So what? Does that have any bearing on us today? Well, right after Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. Let us also run by faith like those witnesses did, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the question is, have you ever fought against the word and the will of God? Trying to go your own way, like you really want to go this way and you're just kind of chafing at God's will and his word, like kicking against it, like an ox kicking against the goads. It could be the sexual ethics of the Bible, God's word and will. There's lots of things that we can kick against because we don't want to go that way. We don't want to yield and submit and trust him. So have you ever wished that God would just leave you alone in some area of your life? Just, you just want to do what you want to do. Have you ever thought you know better than God what's good for you? <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but we do this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, is there anything you're convicted about right now? Spirit of God kind of putting his finger on something? Is God maybe calling you to forgive someone that you want to hold a grudge against? And you just are kicking against that. Or does God want you to reach out and show love to someone that's not easy for you to love? Or to bless someone that you'd rather curse? So are you doing any of that now? I mean, Isaac is a lesson for us. He tried. He tried to just go directly against the will and word of God. It did not go well. God, you, you're just not going to win a battle fighting against God. So we also must lay aside anything that's holding us back, back anything that's entangling us from running in faith with our eyes fixed on Jesus, okay? So, 
Now, we move on in the narrative from Isaac to Esau, beginning in verse 6. So Isaac is now blessing Jacob by faith. Esau is still sadly not walking by faith. He's trying to redeem himself by his own efforts. Look at verses 6 to 9. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. Again, there's some background here. In Genesis 30, or 26, 34, when Esau was 40 years old, you can see it here on the screen, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Hittites were Canaanites. Canaanites a big category, Hittites a smaller category. <clears throat> Genesis 27, 46, the, the previous verse right before our chapter, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Okay, so that's some of the background. Verse 8, so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, it's interesting it doesn't say his father and his mother. Maybe he only cared what his father thought, you know. We had this favoritism thing going on, right? Rebecca favored Jacob. Isaac favored Esau. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. This is, this is just really a sad, kind of pathetic passage. So he had hoped, last chapter, he had hoped that his father's plan to bless him would work out for him. He had given up his birthright, but I, you can imagine, maybe he just thought that his dad's plan would override that foolish decision to give up his birthright for a bowl of stew. And here he is now, not repenting and seeking the Lord. He's trying to redeem himself, make it back, like make up for his previous failures. So he had married those two pagan women from Canaan, which was a big no-no, okay, not fitting for an offspring of Abraham and Isaac, fathers of faith, right? And so he's adding this third wife. You know, she does come from Abraham's son Ishmael, but this is not going to make up for his previous failures, okay? You see, he's just scrambling. He's trying to, to merit a blessing. He's trying to win his father's approval, and it does seem like he's more interested in pleasing his father than pleasing his heavenly father. In fact, it doesn't seem like God really ever even factors in to the equation for Esau, He's looking for a formula. He's looking to pull a lever. You know, he's scrambling. Like, what can I do to get back in favor, to climb back up the ladder into my father's favor? So again, this isn't just a mere history lesson. This is a cautionary tale. Have you ever done this? Do you ever find yourself doing this? Like, especially when you blow it? Instead of stopping and confessing and repenting and receiving forgiveness and cleansing and, if necessary, receiving 
our consequences, what do we often do? We just try to scramble and do some good things in hopes of getting back into God's good favor or in hopes of redeeming ourselves before other people. That is not the way of faith. Okay, Esau is a cautionary tale. We dare not follow in his footsteps. So climbing after him on the ladder of make-up call obedience and self-effort to redeem yourself, that is not the way of faith. You do not get right with God and others by way, by way of make-up call obedience. Have you ever found that at work in your heart? You screw up and you just try to do something to make up for it. So, cautionary tale. The polar opposite of what's going on with Esau here, his sad attempt, is what ends up happening with Jacob next. Okay, the way God deals with him, the grace that he receives from God. So point number three, stairway to heaven, and I'm not thinking of the, uh, the song who knows what that song means anyway? I actually looked up the words. I even looked up, does anybody know what this is about? It's, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, sorry, now you're totally distracted. If you have an iPad, don't look up Stairway to Heaven and look up the lyrics and try to figure it out because you're not going to figure it out. Just saying. Okay? All right. Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> verses 10 to 15. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. This is like over 500 miles. It's a long trip on foot. And he came to a certain place. Actually, the language is a little bit um, uh, more particular here. He happened upon. Like, the point is, it's almost like God wants you to know that this is kind of like a, a random thing, seemingly, right? So he came to a certain place, stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place he put it under his head and lay down in that place. It's just, just a place. No name. It's a random place. Here he's going to find a wife, and instead he finds God, or rather God finds him. Verse 12, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder or a staircase, stairway, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold... The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, Yahweh, stood above it. Or it could be that he's standing beside or over Jacob. So, again, it's so easy to blow by this. Just stop and think about this. This moment right here blows every Super Bowl, every Final Four, every Met Gala, I don't care what the outfits were like. Every Oscars, every presidential election, all the rises and falls of kingdoms and empires and emperors, it blows it all out of the water in terms of importance. In this random spot somewhere between point A and point B. Just think of who's here. Who is gathered at this random place en route to Haran. The creator of heaven and earth. <laughs> These awesome angels. Anytime angels show up in the Bible, people just hit the deck. They're tempted to worship them. You know, Isaiah 6, the, these 
angelic beings declare the name of God and the thresholds are shaking. And here they are, gathered and focused on this spot, in this moment, with this man, ascending and descending, doing Yahweh's bidding. God himself is showing up, coming down, and addressing Jacob personally. That is crazy. That's awesome. So how must this have hit Jacob? Think about it. Prior to this, the God of his fathers was not real to him. He was at least 40 years old at this point, and as of yet, there is no record of any encounter or communication between God and Jacob. Victor Hamilton, a Genesis commentator, writes this. He said, Jacob's expectations of encountering Yahweh somewhere between Beersheba and Haran were about as great as Saul's expectations of meeting the Christ somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus. That's a good way to put it. So certainly he had heard about God, but he did not know God. God wasn't real to him. God was more like a concept to Jacob than a reality. And you know what? In some ways, it's more comfortable that way, right? You feel more in control. But God loves to blow up (laughs) that you know, mere concept dynamic with his reality, his presence. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It's a little bit long, but I think you'll see it's, it's worth it. So it comes from his book, Miracles. Men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. I do not wonder... Here lies the deepest taproot of pantheism. The pantheist God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There is no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. Little parenthesis here. But he is real. The real God is real. So we, all of us, sooner or later, are in for the shock of our lives when we encounter him. Okay? So Lewis continues, You have had a shock like that before in connection with smaller matters. When the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness. Has that ever happened like when you're camping? <laughs> you don't really want that to happen when you're camping. Um, I'll refrain from sharing one story. Um, I don't know what jumped down onto my tent one time. And I'm glad I didn't find out. Um, All right. So here, it is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, Better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, 
That is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. So are any of you dabbling in religion? You know, just a little Jesus, little religious Jesus garnish on the main course of your life. Is God just a concept to you? Is Jesus just a concept, maybe a good one? Or have you had a real encounter with the real God and only God and only Savior? If he's just a concept, then you've, you've been dabbling. But perhaps he has you here this morning because he's coming after you to make himself real to you. Like he did with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. <laughs> like, whoa, woe is me. Like I am coming apart at the seams, seams. But it was so that he could atone for his sins and send him. Here I am, send me. All right? Now, you have to think that Jacob must have been pretty fearful in this dream. It says that he was afraid after it was over. He had just deceived his blind father. He'd even blasphemed the name of God, remember? Boy, son, how did you, you know, come back so quickly? Um, the Lord, you know, blessed my efforts. So is God coming to him to curse him and to punish him? I mean, that's what he deserved, right? Deceitful skunk, liar, blasphemer. But look at what Yahweh says to Jacob back in verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, Who do you think you are, you lying, deceptive schemer, blaspheming me? I no, that's not what he says. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those promises sound familiar? They're the promises that were given to Abraham the father of faith. And now they're given to Jacob. He certainly didn't deserve them. These covenant promises, these blessings are his. And they even get ratcheted up from what was spoken to Abraham. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you, protect you, watch over you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. In other words, I won't ever leave you or forsake you. These are wild, crazy promises. And remember, 
All that we've known of Jacob thus far is a liar and a schemer and a skunk. So here he is, homeless, carrying all that he owns, and God promises him the promised land. He is this solitary fugitive, and God promises him offspring like the dust of the earth. He's in this random, ordinary place, and God promises him that his offspring will spread out in every direction. He deserves a curse for how he's acted in his family. And instead, God promises that through his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He had only been intent on getting, grabbing the blessing, and now God is simply giving it to him, totally undeserved, and he's promising him that he will be a blessing. Totally unconditional. In fact, it's actually better than unconditional. We talk about God's love as unconditional all the time, don't we? In a sense, that's true, but probably the better way to speak about God's love is that it's contra-conditional. Okay, so he blasphemed God's name. You don't just unconditionally say, oh, that doesn't matter. I love you anyway. That sin of blasphemy deserves condemnation, so who's going to pay for that? <laughs> like, there's a condition that Jacob can't meet. He's in trouble. So God's got to actually meet those conditions. So it's not just unconditional positive regard, like in psychology, right? So David Palson has a really, I, I read this years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. So again, another longer quote, sorry, but I think you'll see it's worthwhile. He says, the gospel is better than unconditional love. The gospel says God accepts you just as Christ is. God has contra-conditional love for you. Christ bears the curse you deserve. Christ is fully pleasing to the Father and gives you his, perfect, his own perfect goodness. Christ reigns in power, making you the Father's child and coming close to you to begin to change what is unacceptable to God about you. God never accepts me as I am. He accepts me as I am in Jesus Christ. The center of gravity is different. God's love is very different from unconditional positive regard, the seedbed of contemporary notions of unconditional love. God does not, just, God does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. <laughs> See, it's better. He loves me just as Jesus is. He loves me enough to devote my life. Hear it. He loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. We could call it contra-conditional love. Contrary to the conditions for knowing God's blessing, he has blessed me because his son fulfilled the conditions. Contrary to my due, he loves me. And now I can begin to change, not to earn love like a stairway to heaven, climbing a stairway to heaven, no, but because of love, because love came down to rescue us. You need something better than unconditional love. You need the crown of thorns. You need the promise to the repentant thief. You need to know 
I will never leave you or forsake you. You need forgiveness. You need a vine dresser, a shepherd, a father, a savior. You need to become like the one who loves you. You need the better love of Jesus. So praise God for his contra-conditional love. And we see it really clearly here in the life of Jacob and the way that God deals with him. So these promises and the promiser are better than we know. And they can only be given. They can only be bestowed. We can't grab them and reach for them and grasp them and earn them. We can't climb the ladder to God. We can't build a stairway to heaven. I mean, that was the folly of Babel, right? Man's attempt to ascend to God, to grab the glory and the blessing. It was rebellious. It was futile. And here, Jacob at Bethel, on the other hand, represents God's commitment to descend to us, to come down, to graciously bless us. It was merciful and loving and all of grace. That's how God deals with us. So that's how God deals with Jacob here. And then fast forward a little bit. We'll get to this eventually, Lord willing. Jacob encountered God at night again on his way back to the land, right? Wrestling match. He wrestles with God. He's given this new name, Israel. Jacob becomes Israel. So this man, the forefather of faith, represents the people of Israel, the people of God. So God's ways with him, God's promises to him, are actually an encouragement to the future generations of God's people, which is why in Isaiah 40, hey, Jacob, hey, Israel, I'm speaking to you people of God. So imagine how this episode would be encouraging to God's people in future generations. Imagine Israel leaving Egypt, you know, Pharaoh's on their heels, and they remembered, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Or imagine Israel heading into Canaan, right, with the giants, and they're afraid, and they remember, behold, I'm with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Or imagine Israel in Babylon, because of their sin, in exile, and they remember this episode. Well, God was merciful and gracious, totally undeserved to Jacob. He was a sinful skunk. Maybe he'll be gracious and merciful to us too, which is why Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 43 too, to these exiles, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And so you and me, If we're in Christ, if he's our Savior, we are the people of God. We are the Israel of God. And so whatever you are facing, these promises are yours. He's with you. He will keep you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He will fulfill all of his promises to you. And if you need any more proof, How about Emmanuel, God with us? 
coming down, right? We don't climb a ladder. God comes down, coming down to prove it. He died for you. He rose again for you. And behold, he is with us even to the end of the age. So Christianity is not a ladder to the heavens. We don't have to climb up. God comes down to rescue us, to lift us up. And not only does he come down to rescue and lift us up, but he also comes down to be with us wherever we go, even to the end of the age. So there was this conference um, on comparative religions in Britain um, probably 60, 70 years ago. Religious leaders and scholars, you know, were discussing if and how Christianity is unique, different from the other major world religions. So maybe you've heard this story. C.S. Lewis walked into the room and he asked, what's the rumpus all about? And they told him, you know, what they were discussing. And Lewis replied, oh, it's easy. It's grace. That's what makes Christianity different. So all religions are not the same. All roads do not lead to the same mountaintop. In Buddhism, it's the Eightfold Path. In Judaism, it's the Mosaic Law. In Islam, it's the Law and the Five Pillars. In Hindu, it's Karma. They all offer a ladder, a stairway to gain God's favor. But here we see clearly God's covenantal blessings are granted, not grabbed or earned. He comes down. We don't climb up to him. And God's gracious blessing is given to be given. Remember in Genesis 12 with Abraham? I'm going to bless you so that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's not meant to be grabbed to be kept to ourselves. It's given so that it can be given. So all this grace given to Jacob in this dream, these promises, it ends up awakening faith (laughs) when he wakes up from the dream. So last point, the birth of faith, verses 16 to 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, the place where heaven and earth meet. It's almost like this was the doorway to Narnia. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. In other words, I will build it. And of all that you give me, now he's directly communicating with Yahweh, I will give a full tenth to you. Now that might sound like bargaining. It did initially to me. But this is a pretty typical kind of vow or oath um, framework. So 
think this is actually positive. This is the beginning of Jacob's faith. So rather than scheming and scrambling to get the blessing, he's beginning to accept the grace of God and even depend on it. So this is the one who had grasped and overreached all of his life, and now he's committing to give a tithe to God. So change is taking place by grace from the inside out. So again, note the progression, big picture. God comes down and graciously acts, and then faith rises up in response. This pattern we see all through the Bible, right? This is our God. This is who he is. This is how he acts. And the ultimate coming down is in the flesh and blood of his son. In fact, this passage in Genesis 28 is alluded to in John 1. Okay, so you can turn there or you can follow along up here. We'll close here with this. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, he's the Messiah. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of like, you know, can anything good come out of, you know, uh, I shouldn't say. I'm from Punxsutawney. Punxsutawney, kind of like a redneck place, you know, where on Friday night you do, you kind of peel out of the ice cream store and do laps and you've got the gun rack with fishing pole. Okay, I need to stop. It's kind of like that, redneck territory. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Sounds like Jacob. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, plural, so he's talking to everybody there, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where'd the ladder go? The latter was the, the place where heaven and earth met back in Genesis 28. So where's the ladder here? The Son of Man is the ladder. Jesus is the nexus between God and people. He is the way, the mediator between heaven and earth. So we have... Passages like this, 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or Jesus saying in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one gets to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is our God. It's one story. God deals with his people this way graciously, mercifully coming down to us to seek and find us. This is how gracious he is. Like, read these promises and personalize them. If you are in Christ, they are yours. If you're not in Christ, they can be yours. Come to Jesus. He is the only mediator. 
We are not alone in this world. We're not left to our own pathetic attempts to climb and claw our way up. We don't have to try to earn our way into God's favor and try to redeem ourselves. God came down to lift us up, to be with us all the way home. So we're going to close by singing grace that is greater. So if, if God dealt with Jacob the deceiver and blasphemer like this, why would he not also deal this way mercifully, graciously, totally undeserved with you and me this way? So the question is not whether God can or will be gracious to us, to you, to me. The question that the song asks is, will you this moment, whether for the first time or for the 5,000th time, will you this moment his grace receive? Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good and gracious. You are so merciful. You are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Help us to believe it. Lord, please. We don't want you to just be a concept. We want to have a real encounter with the real and living God. And so, meet with us. Open our eyes by your Spirit to see your glory. Open our ears to hear your voice, your promises, and personalize them. And may they be real to us. And help us to trust you. Help us to see and know and experience and savor and be so just thrilled with your blessings and your presence with us, your promises, so that we are filled up and freed and empowered and willing to share that blessing. We want to be conduits of that blessing to so many around us who need it. So we thank you that your grace is greater than our sin. And we need your grace. And so many around us need your grace. So pour out your grace on us and pour out your grace through us. In Jesus' name, amen.